Welcome to the Mixtape with Scott. I am the host, Scott Cunningham. I'm a professor of economics at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Um, and this is a podcast devoted to the personal stories of living economists, mostly living economists. Uh, sometimes they're not living and sometimes they're not economists, but usually they're both. And uh, also try to tell the collective story of the profession um, over the last, say, 50 years. Um Within the stream of or the river, the giant river of the history of economics is not just the personal stories of people, what there are, but there's also these little little rivers. That's what I've always kind of envisioned in my mind is like these big, big rivers. And then within them are these like little separate streams. And I'm not positive that's real, but um, feels like it should be real. And uh, it was real in... Uh, uh, Finding Nemo, where uh, there was like a little river inside the ocean. So I've decided that it's that it's real. So um, inside the 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 big river of economics, there's the the history of causal inference as it relates to uh, the industrial relations section at Princeton in the 70s and 80s. A lot of you know I've repeated that about a million times. And then Harvard's statistics department, namely Don Rubin as well as its economics department in the 90s, mainly uh, Hito Imbens and Josh Angers, uh, with Josh kind of linking the, the industrial relations section with that Harvard. And it really turned out to be a very influential uh, group of people whose ideas were very influential, but also they were influential in terms of, uh, you know, training students and then those students go in places. And so part of the uh, plan for two thousand and 24 season three of the mixtape with Scott. What we're going to do is I've got the student list uh, from Dave card. I got the student list from J Josh Angris and Hito's getting me the student list. I'm just going to go down the list uh, of, of everybody's students and just try to knock out as many as I can. I want to, I want to document where, where the ideas go by documenting the, where the students go and try to start building in my head, just a map a mapping of where causal inference goes. And I think that, you know, so that's like the, the gimmick, I guess you could call it a gimmick. I'm personally interested in that, but it's also, uh, it's also a way to continue to track down more and more people to kind of learn the story uh, of the profession and then learn personal stories. So with that said, uh, today's uh, guest is a uh, female econometrician named Christine uh, Pinto. Christine is at um, San Paolo. Um, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce it right. At Inspur Institute of Teaching and Research. It's in Brazil. She's an associate professor there. And uh, I was interested in her because of her work on synthetic control. She... Uh, along with Bruno Furman, were the sort of the first econometricians after Alberto Abadie to sort of really just dive into that synthetic control estimator and really pushed a lot of its material forward. And I wanted to talk to her, but in the process of it, I also learned that when she did her PhD in economics at the University of California, Berkeley, lo and behold, uh, Hito Imbens was one of her uh, advisors, at least briefly. So, 
uh, wanted to introduce her to you. She's amazing. This was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot for tuning in and, um, uh, y'all have a good holiday and, uh, see you in uh, the new year. Well, it's my pleasure to have with me today, uh, someone whose work I've admired for a long time, uh, uh, Christine Pinto, would you mind telling us your job title and, and wh where it is that you uh, work? So I'm a professor of economics at INSPER in Brazil. Okay, uh, great. Where is that? So where, where in Brazil is it? In Sao Paulo. Oh, Sao Paulo. Okay, great. All right. Well, perfect. So, uh, well, why don't we get started? So tell me, um, what is a vacation that you had as a kid that to this day you still think about from time to time? This is our icebreaker. Oh, that's hard. But probably my grandmother's house that I spent a lot of time with her when I oh, was yeah? a kid. So I spent like most part of my vacation at this small city in the interior of Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais is a state in Brazil. Uh -huh. So I did a bunch of things. So I think it's my memory for vacation as a kid. It's to spend time in a small city, like biking and doing stuff uh -huh. with my, my cousins and stuff like that. Yeah, you'd go there, what, every summer? Every summer in Brazil, yeah. Oh, okay. Was that near water or anything like that? or? No, no, it's just like farms okay. and a small city. So yeah, we eat a lot. Is Brazil near water? Actually, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have like the water, but Minas Gerais, it's in the interior. So we have uh, like Rio that's in the water and Sao Paulo has some water, but yeah. Minas, it's the interior of the. Uh, of okay. The, okay. Of the yeah. southeast of Brazil. Yeah. Great. So where did you grow up? I grew up at Belo Horizonte. That's the, cap the capital of Minas Gerais. Mm. So I grew up there. So that's why I'm from. This is state that's in the interior of the southeast. So we have São Paulo, Rio, and Minas, and the Espírito Santo. Minas is the only state that doesn't have the water. <laughs> so, okay, Minas. Minas, Minas Gerais. Minas, okay. And so what's that like? It's that like, it's a lot of mountains. So we have oh. like high mountains. And so it's basically mountains, mountains, and mountains all over the place. So... And that's where you grew up. So is that, was it kind of rural or is it a city? No, no, it's a, it's a city. It's a big city. Belo Horizonte okay. is a big city. It's a capital of the state. Ah. It's a big city. It's where you have like all these mines in Minas Gerais that you know about, like Valley and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. the mines are there. So it's the state that you have the, the mines for gold in the past. Oh, and now wow. you have the other things. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, so there's like these old historic, like this is where. Yeah, it was the first capital of Brazil. Oh. Was Ouro Preto is there. Oh, that's cool. So those mines aren't still active though, are they? Yeah, they they extract like the Minério de Ferro. I forgot the name in English. The... Huh. So you grew up around that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Minas Gerais, you, you, Minas Gerais lived like all the, the GDP per capita of the state comes, I don't know, but great most part of the GDP per capita of the state comes from this, this, the, the industry, right? Of oh, the, okay. So what did you, what, what did your parents do for a living? My mother was a teacher. Oh, okay. 
and my father was in, was an engineer, but he passed away like when I was two and a half. So oh. I lived with my mother. Oh, okay. Just your mom? She was a teacher and then she was a principal of high school, of high school. So. Oh, wow. Do you have any siblings? No, I'm the only child. You're the only child? Um, wait, so where does your mom live now? Does she still live in? She still in... lives in Belo Horizonte, yes. Oh, okay. Okay. How close are y'all to one another physically? Oh, now we are not so far away, right? Because by plane, it's like 45 minutes. Sao Paulo. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Belo Horizonte is like 45 minutes. And you have many direct flights every day. So, yeah. Did you have a sense that you were always going to end up back in Brazil? Yes and no. When I finish my PhD, I really want to come back for personal reasons, right? Because I'm the only child and I have a scholarship from Brazil. So mm. I, I, I feel that I need to pay this somehow. Mm. So I really want to come back. When I went back... It was funny because then after like a few months, I went to go back to the United States. I was like, I don't know if I want to come to oh, live yeah? here anymore. Yeah. So, but then I went back and they spent like, I don't know, half a year in the United States. And I said, no, I think I should go back and and be with my family. So then that's when I went, I came back definitely to Brazil. Yeah. Well, what did you love about Brazil as a kid? When you think back now, what was the, what it, what was it like as a kid growing up there? What I love about Brazil, I think I love the food. Mm. And I love like to have like this huge family around. Because mm. in Brazil, you know how it works, right? So everybody's a family. <laughs> I don't know. Right. But like you grow up with all your family around, right? So parents, grandparents, cousins, uncles, aunts. So mm. it's very different from the United States, right? You, right. And I think that's the good thing about being a kid in Brazil. Yeah. So you just had like your whole family, your, your family, your extended family was kind of your social life. Yeah. Right. And the friends and, and sometimes the, the family of the friends become your family. So it's like, um, you have this thing that it's we're always together with the family. So it's nice for a yeah, kid. That does sound nice. That does yeah. sound nice. So, uh, so you didn't move around as a kid. You stayed in that one. I stayed in Belo Horizonte. I did my undergrad at the Federal University of Minas Gerais. Mm. And then when I finished my undergrad, I moved to Rio. Oh. So my first job was in Rio because that's the problem. Belo Horizonte, it's a capital, but the, the labor market, the labor market's not so <laughs> like big as Sao Paulo and Rio. So when I finished my undergrad, I moved to Rio to work. So mm. I, I want to be like, I want to work with research. So I moved to work with Ricardo Pais Barros oh. in a research institute. And then after one, one year in Rio, I applied to my master. And I did my master in Rio at PUC Rio. Oh, okay. Okay. So I went, yeah. And then after my master, I went to the US to do my PhD. Right, right. So what were you like? What what were you like as a kid? Were you would this have been something as a kid? If your ten year old self would have seen what you're doing now, would she be surprised? No, no, no. I knew that I want to be economist, but really? I want yeah. All my life, I told my mother I want to be economist, and my mother's like, "What? What are you talking about? You should be a doctor, or an engineer. What are you talking about?" Oh my gosh! And my idea is like, I want to be economist too. And I have I, I thought about two things when I was to to open like my my own my own firm, right? So I want to have a business. 
at some point, or I want to do like international relationships Uh-huh. to to apply to Itamaraty, like to be like to work in the embassy and so on and so forth. So I have just two paths in my head, Yeah. and and it's like so when I started economics, I I was really frustrated in my first semester as a in economics, right? Uh-huh. Because I like in the Federal University of Minas Gerais, you have basically the the first semester you do with the social science in general, right? So, and I think it's really important. But at this that point, I was like, I'm not learning math. What what happens? I want to do. I want to have my own business. I need to learn things that I can. So it was really funny, like for me, like so. I was really frustrated when I started the economics, but in the second semester, land you have math, you have economic statistics and econometrics, and then I, I, and I said, no, 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 I know what I like. Uh, yeah. And then How in the world did you know? How did you even know what an economist was when you were a little kid? no idea, right? But I have like some uncle that was economist and he had his own business. So in my mind, it's like. You have to be an entrepreneur. I need to do economics. Oh, be an economist. Oh, Yeah, exactly. so it was kind of the And the entrepreneurial people that you knew. yeah, exactly. All of them Oh. were economists. So in my head, like if I do if I I do economics, I can have my own business, and that's fine, right? Right, So. right, right. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So you had so you were think you had inside you this desire to be an entrepreneur. Exactly. A business person. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, it didn't happen. Right, right. So then you go to call. So in high school, <laughs> uh, what kind of student are you in high school? I were a very good student. Yeah. I was a very good student. Yeah. So you. I, I like, I love math. I love physics. I remember that my professors in the last year of high school, at the senior year, they told me like, are you sure you want, you're going to do <laughs> economics? Because you could do like <laughs> engineering, because in Brazil, like econo like economics is not the most competitive course by the time that at Right. Minas Gerais. So they said you can do whatever you want. Right. Like you can do like engineering, you can do math. And I was like, Right. no, I want to be economist. Ah. Uh, huh. <laughs> and they were like, but I was a, a very good student. Like I, I. Why do you think so when you're in high school, what is it that's pulling you into econ and not uh I mean cuz probably by high school you're realizing there's lots of ways you could become an entrepreneur. What's still holding you into econ at that time? No idea. I think I have this in my head. But for me, and also for me, it was like the course that I didn't, at this, at this point, people were telling me, you should do like math. And I said, no, I, I, li I like math, but I like other things, right? I like history. I like other things. So I don't want to be a math mathematician. I don't like engineering because I don't want to build things. So in my head, it was like that. So I want like a Economics for me was a course that it was a mixture of like math and a little bit of like things that I like in this sense and a little bit of history. My mother is a history teacher. So I had this, Mm -hmm. this influence at home, Mm. Oh, right. right? I, Right. I read a lot about the things. So I like this part too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Yeah. so economics for me was more like something that combines different things that I like. Yeah. And not only like math, not only history, not so that's why I, I think I 
You could see that in high school. You could see yeah. already that e-com was a lot bigger than just like being a business person. Yes, I could see that. I could see not like that, but I could see that was a course that has a mixture of topics that I like, right? Yeah. So it was more flexible than, for example, like if I do math, then I could be a professor like I right. am today, but like what else? Like I could work in the financial market and so forth, but with economics, I could do more. So I have right. this idea. Right. And I don't want to do business because in my head, and it's true, right? The math part of economics was stronger than the math part of the business course. So right. I want to do economics because of that. Oh, so it was very strategic it. in my head, mm. economics. But it's true that I didn't have a lot of sport to do economics because people were like, what are you doing with your life? You should do other <laughs> things. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> So wait, so you go, so you graduate high school, you go to college and you exactly. enroll in your econ classes and, yeah. but you in were Brazil saying different that- different from the, the United States, right? In okay. Brazil, when you go to college, you go to a specific course. So if you choose oh. economics, you do economics. There's no, not like in the United States that you have like two years as like liberal arts and then you choose your major. In Brazil, you go to your major, right? So- Wow. It's a little bit different. So if you choose economics, you're going to do economics. If nice you choose thing. business, you're going to do business. So that's how it works. But that was perfect for you. It worked really well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you knew from an early age. Is that Was that common? Were you unique amongst your friends of like, no. I know exactly what I want to do? No, no. Everybody I have else. a friend, a very good friend that dropped magical school in the last year. Dropped out? Dropped out. Oh, because it just was never what they wanted. Yeah, and he found out in the last year of magic uh, school. Yeah, I guess. I guess it's better because you're so young. Uh, right. I think the United States system is, in this sense, it's better because with 17 years old, it's it's really hard yeah. to find out who you are and what you're going to be. So it's like it's a lot so, of pressure yeah. to put on a kid. It's a lot well, of pressure. It yeah. may not even be. I mean, it may not even be a lot of pressure. The brain is not even fully formed yet. So I mean, exactly. there's not a lot of information they can really So, have. yeah. So, for example, today that I'm I'm a professor, I have many kids, like uh, undergrad kids that drop out, like in the second year of economics, because oh, they think it's they going were... to be one thing and then it's the other. Or people that, like, start economics and then go to business or vice right. versa. Yeah. Because, like, it's not like what they... They thought it, it was going to be. It, right? It's so, got to go ahead. No, go ahead. It's <laughs> got to be that though in Brazil, higher education sort of is fully aware of this. Like, you know, we're going to lose people because we've asked them to sort into a career when they were 17. So what does Brazil higher education look like? Do they just make it easy for you to quit and start something different? Or is it still just pretty, there's a lot of frictions. I think there are a lot of frictions. They're 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 trying to decrease the frictions. So, for example, the time I I did like, like I finished high school, you have like to do one exam for each school you apply for each university to apply, right? Mm -hmm. So, Brazil system, you need to take an exam to enter the colleges, right, the universities, and so at my time, you need to do one exam for each place you apply right 
So it was really hard to move it from your state, right? For example, at the time I went to apply to USP, that's uh, the State University of Sao Paulo, that's really good. It's still really good. And so, but it was the same day as the federal, the exam was the same day as the Federal University of Minas Gerais. So I need to choose which <laughs> I was going to, what I was going to do. Of course, I did the one that was close to me. But nowadays, what happens is that you have a national exam that you can take for many schools that's called it NA. Mm. And so I think the frictions decrease a lot uh, with this new policies and so on and so forth. Oh, because oh. now many schools accept the same exam, so when apply, so it decreases. The frictions are, I think, decreased over yeah. time, but yeah. still there are a lot. So if you apply, like, so so just to finish the, your question, so if I apply to, for example, if I enter Inspire and I went to change course, it's a process, right? Uh -huh. If I want to change for another university, then I need to take the exam again. Uh -huh. Oh, got it. Right, right, right. Okay. So what classes in college, uh, you know, that you had, or what professors in college or what experiences in college really made sort of do you look back and think really changed your or deepened your interest in economics was there certain was it just a very smooth transition or were there things that just mm, even had big effects i think there are things that had big effects and so my first semester i went to quit <laughs> i was uh -huh. like what am i doing with my life and then the second semester i started to have math and statistics and the third semester i have econometrics and i said okay this is the part i like more Right. So I knew like micro. So I knew always like micro and econometrics. That's, That's my thing. Like. Yeah. And so I like, I really like it. So, and then I start to be like, uh, you have like at my university by the time, you have this program that they have this, this student that could do research as a group, like a research assistant of some professors, but they hire out the group and then they allocate to some professors in this group. So I was part of this group and I think that make a huge difference. Mm, mm. Because I could learn a little bit how how was academic research since the beginning. Yeah. So, and I remember by the time, by my third year, I started doing research with a professor. Oh. And then at the same time, I got a job at the financial market. Oh, you did? Yeah, and I could compare and like after two months, I was sure that I didn't want to go to the financial market, oh. that I want to, to do yeah. research. So it make a huge difference in terms of like what, like to figure out what I want. And so was that intentional on your part? You were kind of wanting to do something to see if you would like it or was that just exactly? Kind of, yeah, oh, you I want to test. Know. Yeah. And I love uh, doing research. Like I had a really good advisor. She was amazing and she did like gender economics with data mm. everything i like so so you were already was, working with data in college i always work with data your, in even as a junior so that if would have been what like early 2000s no much before that really yeah so yeah. i remember that at the time you didn't have all these fancy computers that you have nowadays I bet, we went to high, I bet we graduated high school around the same time. I graduated high school in 94. Yeah, I, I, mine was 95. 95? Okay, good. Exactly. What kind of music were you listening to in high school? Were you, was there American oh. music popular? Yes, but I can't remember exactly. 
<laughs> I wasn't very good if in music by the <laughs> You were focused on your on your <laughs> career in life. Some of I was being getting into trouble. Um <laughs> so uh let's see. Okay, so you decide to go to grad school. And then so tell me about going from college to this master's degree to Berkeley. How did you so how come you didn't go directly into a PhD program? I because in Brazil Brazil like to apply to the PhD, usually you take the master degree in Brazil, right? You yeah, get the yeah. letters and so, so forth. Yeah, that's and what someone else told like, me. Yeah, that's that's the the straightforward process, right? So mm. you do your undergrad, then you apply to an actual exam in Brazil to get mm. to the master. Uh-huh. And then you do your master and then you apply to the PhD. Oh. So you learn that in college. They just your professors are just like, look, you're not going to go directly to Berkeley. You're going to have to go to this master's degree, get yeah. your letters, and go. It's very rare to go directly to the school. Yeah, and for me, it was kind of important because my undergrad was very different from a traditional undergrad in terms of like how much math I had, how much econometrics I had. I had lower courses of econometrics. Lower number of course of econometrics and math than the normal, the traditional courses in the U.S. like in Pukirio at Innsbruck at FGV. It was more like history and stuff like that. Yeah. So for me, it was important to have the master. So for me, it was like I had a huge jump right from my undergrad to the master. So mm -hmm. when I entered my PhD, it was fine. I had the background to go and and did the course and so forth. And it was fine. I, if I went directly from my undergrad, I don't know what was going to happen because right. I had a huge like deficit in terms of like math. The math. Even the math, the formal micro and so forth. So oh, so, you, so in college, are you thinking in college? When do you in college go, I want to go get a PhD? When did that happen? No, it happened in the master's, right? So what Who's happened in the is master's? like, it was in the masters. So what happens like when I finished college, my advisor told told me, you should do should go and work with search with someone else. So and then so there is Ricardo Pais Barros, that a famous economist, a former Hackman student. Mm. He was doing research about labor market and with big data and so forth. And so you should go and do research with Ricardo Pais Barros. Because you were going to, you need to learn more about policy evaluation and so on and so forth. So that you, you want to go study with him? Yeah. So I went to work with him. So I were I worked like one year with him as a research assistant, and then during this year, he told me you need to do a master because oh. to be able to do research, you need to do a master. So then I applied to the master, and then I went to Puki, and then. When I was in Puke, I was studying like crazy and trying to do some research and so forth. And at the end of like my master, I was like, what, <laughs> what I'm going to do? I could go back to the market and try to find a job like at an NGO or at a research group or someone, or I can apply to a PhD. And by the time, I was very curious about econometrics theory because the master is only two years, bro. So you don't have much time to learn like about about econometrics and so it's for you learn yeah. but it's not like everything it's not like a lot right so what at the end of my master my advisor came to me is like you need to do a phd because you have many questions about theory 
that you couldn't answer during your master. So I think you need to focus on econometrics theory and do a PhD. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right. I did like the whole master thing about doing applied micro and now you're telling me that I need to do. And he was right, right? So yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm right. Because sometimes I was very like curious about how this work, how this, when this work, when this doesn't work, why I'm right. doing this, why I'm not doing that. And so that's how I decided to apply to a PhD. But oh. it was like in the last minute, it was like oh. I, I started my application in August. And for Brazil, this is really late, right? Because you need to get the letters, the GRE, the TOEFL, and so forth. So. Okay. What year is that? What are, what are we talking about? 99. Oh, so you apply for grad schools in 99? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. 99. You're in the master's program in 99? That's when you're in the master's program? No. No. no I I started the master's program in 96. Wait. I'm, I'm confused with the data. So I finished my undergrad. Um, I started my PhD in 2000. 2000. Got it. Exactly. Oh, okay. Okay. And that, that's at Berkeley. At Berkeley. Yeah. 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 So was it just one of these things where you, you just applied to all the top schools and you went to Berkeley or was there one of these things where you were like, no, my advisor was like, I need to go to Berkeley or what, what's the, is there a story? So I mean, usually... It's an incredible program. So, I mean, but, but I just, yeah, I was really happy with Berkeley. Which yeah. what happens like at Puki, the professors is usually they, they try to tell us like, oh, you need to see where you're applying. So your classmate has a chance to apply to other places. So they basically oh. help us to have our list. Right. And so what happens? They don't want like, you all applying to the same school. No, they because they distribute it out. Yeah. Because otherwise you, the only Imagine one will like get two in. persons, yeah, two so persons try to from the same university with the same letters, oh. with the same like CV, Got very it. similar, right? So they try to sort us out in terms of like where oh, to that's go, smart. yeah, and that, and usually it's basically on what you want to do as a researcher and where the best place to be. By the time I really want to do econometrics theory, so I re Berkeley was like one of my top, like like one of the top ones for me. Mm -hmm. And then I remember that I had a good friend that wants to do applied micro and you had exactly the same grades, the same <laughs> letters. And so the professors come to us like, you need to help each other. You are friends. So you need to decide where you're going to apply and where, like where Christine is going to apply and where Anna is going to apply. Because if you apply together, it's not going to work, right? And so that's what you did, like you coordinated. And mm. so. So I had like compromises. You're like, Anna yeah. can apply to Harvard and MIT and you're going to apply to Berkeley. And Yeah. And so you start out, one applied to MIT, one applied to Harvard, the other one applied to Berkeley, the other applied to Princeton. Mm. The only school that both of us applied was Chicago. Chicago both apply. And so you did like that. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of lets in more people historically too. So yeah, maybe it yeah. doesn't matter as much. And it has a long tradition to accept Brazilians. Ah, so yeah. Right. In fact, both of us got in, into Chicago. So what'd you pick Berkeley for? I picked Berkeley first because I had a, I was between Chicago and Berkeley by the time. So I, 
I remember that I visited Chicago and and so I think I went to do econometrics and both places were pretty good in econometrics by the time. But Berkeley has a better weather and I hate the winter. <laughs> it's a little different than Brazil in the winters in Chicago, I hear. No, yeah, I visit Chicago during the winter and I was oh, like, yeah. I'm not sure how I can survive. <laughs> you were like traumatized. <laughs> not traumatized, but I was like, I'm not sure I can survive here. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, that would have been brutal. Uh, wow. So you get to Berkeley. So tell me about getting to Berkeley. What was that like? That must have been so neat to, to land there. I mean, I know now you're like used to it, but what was it like at the beginning? The beginning was really hard, I think. Mm. But the first semester was hard because I didn't have a house. I was trying to figure out things. But then after six months, it was pretty good. Yeah. I think Berkeley was amazing. It's yeah, amazing. yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was it like being in the city? I don't know. I mean, you are you feel like you're in San Francisco, right, when you're in Berkeley? Or is it, as a student, you're sort of in an, that little part of town? You're not, like, all over the Bay. All no, over you are, the no, you are a little – you are in the university, right? So you live, like, really – I lived really close to the university. So basically my life was, like, the university and – and then during the weekend, sometimes I go to San Francisco, sometimes I go to the other cities, but like yeah, my life was the universe. Yeah. But Berkeley is amazing. I think it has a great weather, great people. Yeah. The department was amazing. Mm -hmm. I remember that I didn't want to leave Berkeley at some point. I was like, could I stay here? And my advisor was like, no. <laughs> like, Did you ever get to know Manisha Shaw while you were there? Did y'all know each other? She would have been in the ARE program though, I think. She's a development. She's my co-author. She's, you don't. Do you ever know her? Maybe I don't Maybe. remember okay. the name. Yeah, because That's you it. have some contact with people from the year from the other department, the ARE, but not so much, right? Not because so they much. Did so some, you don't interact. They did a so lot. much course. Yeah, because I didn't do applied micro or development. At the at the end, I did like econometrics and labor, right? So I right. was kind of more in the economics department, right? So okay. I yeah. Okay. So you're, you, you pretty quickly then it sounds like you sort of sort into econometrics and labor. Like that's like, you, you yeah. knew it almost the moment you got there or was it sort of. Yeah. Like when I went there, I had in my head that I want to do econometrics yeah. and I want to do a applied field. Yeah. Right. Because I was like, I, I started everything with applied micro. Yeah. Now I want to do econometrics, but something applied micro. And so that's how I choose, like, as a major, econometrics, mm -hmm. but yeah. as a minor, labor and education, right? Yeah. And so, well, so what? So what professors were you taking your classes from that made a big impression on you? I'm sure it was everybody, but I, I everybody, guess everybody, like, right? But what, I think you have a. By the time you have a very good econometrics team, right? Right. So you have like Ebens was there. Oh, he was Powell, there. When you were there. If he was there, he was my he he was my advisor too, right? I started with him. And then he moved. And so he oh, was, he was there your advisor initially. In the beginning, yeah. Oh. Then he left and then I moved to Briar. So oh. so so but it was a, yes, he was there, Powell and Jackson and Rude. So it was a huge Matt Not not Matt Jackson, the the one that's issue Berkeley The not Matt Jackson, the other econometrician. Oh my thing, I can't think of it. Okay. Well, so then uh, you, so you end up going next to. Um, and I have a very good colleague. So. Yeah. Kataneo was my colleague. Oh, really? Trump was my colleague. So we have a very good 
class, like cl very small groups of, of people. Mateus Cataneo? And Mateus Cataneo. Oh, he was your colleague? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Y'all were so the same cohort. Same cohort. Oh. So it was a very good cohort of people doing econometrics. You have like oh. four. That's a lot for econometrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So, so you Cataneo, Carolina Caetano, Richard Crump. And Who's at I, University of Georgia? Yeah. Yeah. So she was also in your cohort. Oh, wow. What a great group. Um, so um, so how did you end up with Brian then? I know you said Hito left, but 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 Hito I was left. looking at Brian's Vita and I wouldn't have I was I've his seen first all the social network stuff. Yeah. I was his first advisee and everything oh. happens because I was his first advisee and everything happens because I want to study peer facts. Oh. And Brian just came out from the job market with a very nice paper about perfects, right? Mm -hmm. And so we started working together, and that's why he. Did you end up working on stuff on perfects? I was looking at your video. I was trying to figure out what it, I was wondering if it was the education part the, of it that made you connect with Brian, but I didn't. Look, yeah, no, it, it was the perfects in education. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did. I have a third chapter in my dissertation that I never published that I shouldn't that yeah, was about peer effects in education yeah okay 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 so you were interested in peer effects yeah that was so uh does that what your job market paper ended up being on was on peer effects or was it yeah, exactly. was it pure econ it was in, and it was like more econometrics though it wasn't yeah some other econometrics peer effects oh it was econometrics peer effects okay 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 so so you so you end up though okay I'm just trying in my head to kind of build a profile of you. So you, you, uh, you're, you're specializing. It's, it's clear you're an econometrician and you also have this interest in applied questions, but you've, the bulk of your career seems like if, am I wrong? The bulk of your Vita is like pure econometrics. It's like, it's much more pure econometrics, not just like applied econometrics. You're like, you're making real contributions to econometric theory. That's how I read it. Yeah. 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 I have, right. I have more papers in econometrics than the applied. In the applied side, I only do education, right? Yeah, so that's right. Okay. I restricted my applied side to education. Mm. And, and I did much part of my career in econometrics. Half and half, sometimes 9%, 10%, depends on the time of the year, because I in the education side, I do some policy evaluation, I collect some data, I do some RCTs and so forth. Okay, okay. Okay. So it's true that most part of my papers are in econometrics. So when you go on the job market at Berkeley, I, I don't want to skip to the job market, but when you go on the job market, did you have to kind of present yourself or were the people presenting yourself as an econometrician or was it, I mean, what was the, what was the job market paper? It was an applied micro paper on. No, econometric? it was an econometrics paper. Oh, it was an econometrics paper. It was an econometrics paper, but I didn't, in fact, went, I went to the market a little bit, but not much because I want to go back to Brazil, right? Oh. By that time. So I didn't went like to the traditional whole economy job market thing. You graduate Berkeley kind of saying to yourself, I need to go back to Brazil. Yeah, because I had the scholarship. Because so. you had the scholarship. Was that yeah. a is that when you get those scholarships, is it a bummer? You kind of think, Oh, I gotta go back and it's gonna mess up stuff, or is it how does it feel? It feels like I had the scholarship. If I stay in the US, I need to pay some part of the scholarship back. So it was yeah. it wasn't much harder than to stay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I need to get a very good job to be able to pay the scholarship and to stay in the US. Mm. And by the time it was 2008, right? It's at oh, the time the of the crisis. Yeah. Mm. So I remember that everybody was telling me, if you don't want to stay, you shouldn't go because you can take like, like it's not a good idea because I have many students and right. people need to find jobs if, if yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you um so this 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 is so this, this kind of takes us into your your uh uh the this first paper on your vita and I don't mean to jump but I I this inverse probability probability tilting paper that's in restud is that your first publication? It's my first publication. It's that's the, your first one of the chapters of my dissertation. That was one of your chapters? Wow. So uh but you didn't publish your job market paper, but you published the inverse probability tilting paper. I published and it, uh, the two others, right? I published oh. these and the GB, the GB, JBS too. The two of oh. them are from my dissertation. Okay. But not exactly my job market paper. Well, yeah. how did you get interested in this inverse probability tilting? And so now I think it might be worthwhile for me just real quickly to say that if the reader, if the people listening don't know it, they actually... Uh, might be using inverse probability tilting and they didn't know it because it's in the CSDID package for Callaway, Santana, Diff and Diff, right? Isn't it in the, the state of Yeah, it's right. They're, yeah. They're, they're using it and they didn't even know it probably, or yeah. maybe they did know it. Uh, can you tell me like sort of the first, what is this topic and how did you get into it? How did you get attached to it? I got attached to it because of Briar. I was uh -huh. working with him as a research assistant. And he had this agenda about like, oh, I want to build methods that are more robust. And then mm -hmm. we start to working with this double robust stuff. Right. And then and then how it comes is two papers, right? So we entered this literature of causal inference and it's like, oh, how can you uh, join this literature of causal inference with this literature in the, in the statistics about double robust estimators? And so that's how you build these two papers, right? Mm. And so basically it was completely attached because of I was working with Brian with this with this similar literature. And you come up with this idea about, oh, maybe you can combine these two literatures and build something for the average treatment effect and how you can do in a more general setting. And then you play with this combination of data. That's so what was wrong? What was wrong with? Uh, so just so I have the context, I actually feel like I, I my knowledge of double robustness is real spotty. So like I know it in certain applications only, but I don't know like the full history of double robust. So where where is the literature before this paper comes out? Why does this inverse probability tilting be needed if we already have like, um, you know, like the robbings and yeah. Robin's paper, right? Uh -huh. Robin's paper is a more general paper, right? When he applies to a mean, I think he applies to averages, right? Okay. And so you want to apply this to another context. That's the context when you have like missing data, mm. like in the in a policy evaluation setting, right? So oh. these two papers are two papers about data combination. You have when you have like data combination, you have like some missing data and you have only one piece of data and you have some missing data, but you have like a population da data and some other sample that you can play with to combine. Mm -hmm. So you have these two papers saying like, how can you pick this idea of 
homings that it's like to build adobo robust estimators and he plays with average and bring this to this causal inference literature, trying to provide parameters that are, try to provide methods that are more robust to get these causal parameters that people play with in the literature, right? right so that's right. the idea of yeah. the two papers, right? Like, okay. and, then, and then after these two papers, there are a bunch of, there's a other literature playing with that, right? The double robust estimators. So nowadays, like have double robust estimators for the latte, for many, many different, many other parameters in this causal inference literature, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so how did you get in? So he presents it to you, but it must have been some like puzzle or some problem that, you know, was not trivial to kind of, uh, work out that you work out in the chapter. So like, what was the, what was the core sort of problem that you had to kind of figure out with this paper? In this paper, I think the core problem was for, for me, it was like, I need to learn all this literature about double yeah. robust, right? Mm -hmm. And how to come up with a estimator that's double robust, right? So the idea like to, oh, the, the way to play is like, oh, let's think if you can derive the influence, influence function and from the influence function, you think about double robust. Yeah. I think this this path by the time wasn't clear in my head. Today, if I need to do a double hypothesis, of course, I have the whole roadmap in my head, right? So right. first, I'm going to derive the influence function. Then the influence function has two pieces, and I play with these two pieces to see if I can come up with a double hypothesis. But right. by the time, I, I have no idea how to play with these things, right? So I have I was so the first the time I yeah that's a. Yeah, it was the first time I was thinking like this. It was the first time also that I need to derive a same parametric efficiency bound. Yeah. Even though you learn this in the econometrics courses, right? When you do the field, when you apply the thing, it's really different, right? You think about projections and mm. the paths you are projecting, how to get the same parametric efficiency bound. So I think I learned a lot in this first paper, right? What were the because skills that you, what are the skills that you need to derive the semi-parametric efficient bound? I mean, so what, what, what are, you said projection, what, what was it that really paid off in order to be able to successfully do that? I definitely don't have any of them, so. I think I need to understand a lot of the newest papers about how to get it and to understand mm. like a lot about stochastic process, right? Mm. Because we're projecting or projecting functions, right? So I was like, okay, now I need to go to the, the word of functions and think about how to project functions and so on. And then it pay off all this course I took about stochastic process in statistics, yeah. right? Because that's the way I was like, oh, now I understand how, mm. how to apply these concepts, right? So, so that was a real growing experience. That it was a growing experience. I learned a lot with this uh, first paper. Like huh. I learned a lot, a lot. You proud of that paper? I mean, it. I mean, it's... yeah, it took a long time to be published, but yeah, I'm proud of that paper. Yeah. I think. Huh. In fact, like I like this paper, but the one that I like more is the the JBS one. I really? Think the JBS one was my was my the one that I was like, oh, this is very nice because huh. it was like because the like the first paper is based the average treatment effect, right? So by the time the average treatment effect, everybody knew a lot about it. So it was a contribution. It has important contribution, but it's like in a setting that everybody knew a lot. But mm. the only one, it's about the ATT, something that was like oh. by the time people like didn't have an idea how to build robust estimators there and so on and so forth. So I was, this the second paper was like my, my oh. child by the time. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is the paper. I think it was like, 
oh, now I, I understand like that they're doing something new about ATT and so on and oh. so forth. So that was the case like back then in grad school. Actually, this is interesting, not to get on a sad tangent, but you could tell you were like, a lot of people know a lot about the average treatment effect, but there's less focus on the ATT. It wasn't as common of a parameter that people were even talking about. Yeah, that's true. Really? That's how I felt by the time. Like that. Huh. It was like many years ago, right? Now, yeah. now, <laughs> now a, you know a lot, right? Now you know a lot about it, especially with all this diff and diff stuff. But yeah, exactly. Uh, but so, well, then. Why? So what made that such a more difficult or a different kind of problem than just sort of a, you know, kind of moving it over to the, from the ATE? What, what made it such a novel challenge? No, it's, it's challenging because it's a different setting and oh. the parameter, the, the behavior of the parameters is a little bit different, right? So it's, yeah. it's harder in the case of the ATT, right? Mm. So the result for the ATT you had by the time, it was weaker than the ATT, right? You could not oh. have like how the, how the double robust, like yeah. it was double robust, but not as strong as the ATT. And so, mm. because it's a different setting, right? Mm. Like now you are like with a subpopulation. So how can you play with that? And so, I like more the second paper, even though the first one is in case study, and I think yeah. the contribution is there. Right. I, and I learned a lot, but I have like, I, I think the second one was more like, oh, let's pay attention to this parameter too and try to build something for this. And it's funny because nowadays everybody likes the ATT because of the difference in difference. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I was just even thinking with the synthetic control, I wonder if even, I mean, um, you know, I wonder if all that work then on that one just even puts you in a different mindset for this work that you end up doing on synthetic control. Synthetic control. Well, because yes, I mean, it's also an I also interpret the synthetic control parameter estimates as an ATT. I mean, even when yeah, it's that's just, true. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's um, a parameter for the treated, right? It's really for a parameter the for the treated, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is I said. So there, there's a part of the, my search agenda that's like trying to contribute to this inf causal inference literature, right? So, yeah. And this touch control was funny because Bruno Ferma was my colleague, right? He, he went he to wasn't Berkeley Econo Alta? No, he went, he went to MIT, right? Oh. And, and he was an econometrician when he went to the yeah. market. He, he became an econometrician when he came to yeah. Brazil, right? Oh. And it was funny because he came to me with many questions. He was like, Chris, I don't know how to apply this to this, how I can do this to this. And then we start talking about a lot of the problems. And and he, at the end, he became an econometrician, a very good one. <laughs> oh, so wait, when you said he was your colleague, did he work at your school? No, he, he worked at, because I was at FGV first, right? I spent oh. like my first 10 years in Brazil at FGV. Oh, and that's where y'all overlapped. Y'all overlapped Yeah, there. that's where I overlapped. Yeah, he, it was his second job, right? Oh, Okay. And okay. then he, he came. Yeah. So you have like many years of overlapping at FGV. Oh, were you already thinking about synthetic control before the no, two no. together? No, no, It was his questions. Like he came to me and he's like, I don't know. First of all, he came to me and he's like, I have a problem. I'm applying difference in difference. And I don't know how to do inference when I have like few treated units. Right. Because none of, the yeah. Yeah, none of the methods that I apply work mm. <laughs> like, and then i was trying to figure out to him why it's not working and so what was not working what was he showing you that wasn't working 
because he was trying to apply Colin Tarver, but Colin Tarver yeah. has has the um, uh, the homokadasticity assumption behind, ah, and he didn't right. have homokadasticity in his yeah. paper. Yeah, and it was applied paper that he was doing. Mm -hmm. He was like, I don't know how to do this, mm. and I know this is not right. That I'm over rejecting. I think by the time yeah, he was over rejecting, and so how can you do something to fix it? And then mm. how it everything started. It was oh. with this applied paper. That's where it started. It. That's what started. That's what started even the work on the synthetic control. Yeah, because paper? the yeah, because because thinking about small small number of units. Or, that's exactly. And then mm. you came, and then by the time it's like, oh, maybe I should move to the synthetic control. Oh. And then I started talking about the synthetic control, and I was like, yeah, I think it's a new method, but I don't understand fully understand the method in the sense that I don't understand, fully understand the theory. Yeah. And he's like, oh, so. Let's try to do something together here because I think I want to move to econometrics. And he then, that's that. yeah, and yeah. so you were kind of, uh, you were he he ends up moving towards you to learn. We all end up being partners in not this to plan. learn with me, right? He's really smart. It's like <laughs> yeah, we, start sure. To, sure. we start to working together, yeah, because he had many questions and he's like, Oh, I think I want to be an econometrician because this is really nice, like right. what we're talking about and yeah. doing so on. Yeah, and yeah. then he moved it to the field. It was really nice. But, and then that's how he started. Because there's everything. not really a logical connection, I guess, now that we're talking between that. There's not the peer effects. And then, so these, you guys together just kind of dive into this synthetic control stuff. I've always kind of thought of you guys as like the first post-Abity synthetic econometricians working on synth. Is that is that correct? I always feel like I it's more active now, but it seemed like for a while it wasn't really more than it was applied people, if anybody. But I didn't see a lot of, you know, econometricians doing much until till y'all. But maybe I'm misreading it. I feel like y'all were yeah. y'all have been very active I think on people it. People are talking very about it, time. but yeah, I think we're the first. I don't know if the first ones, but one of the first ones should think about let's do a theory for this estimator, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not clear for us like identification and i think Abaji did a really good job of course like in the in showing how the method works but at some point bruno was like i want to understand how to how to apply this method and which assumptions should i care about how how this work in fact in, in terms of like when you get consistent, when you don't get consistent. And because, but the question was like, he had an applied paper and you did the difference in difference. And he was like, oh, maybe I should move to synthetic control. And yeah. they're like, but you have no theory about the synthetic control effect, oh. right? So, and then you start working on that. And then by the time no it's true that you have a little bit of theory that comes from the Abaji paper, yeah. right? But Abaji did some theory for the synthetic control. Yeah. But it wasn't like... What was missing? Well, so, because I, I, there's the 2010... Jassa and but what is it that what's in there and what's not in there that you're talking I about? I think what is missing is like first of all, I think what Bruno and I did in the first place was like let's think about this that control using the setting of the, the factor models in the a factor, factor model. Yeah, the factor model like in Abaji, what's the identification assumption? What means and Abaji has a, the identification function function that's the perfect fit, right? Right. But let's put like in a formal way what's the identification assumption, what's the perfect fit in the context of this model. I think you yeah. did that. Yeah. And then you are like, okay, but now you know, like, so if this assumption holds, that's the, the result you had in Abaji. Then 
the estimator is going to be consistent when the pretreatment goes to infinite. How do you prove that, right? Because Abaji has the bias calculating the supplemental appendix, but you're like, okay, but how you show like for the applied person, the conditions they need to think yep. to be able to see that they are providing a consistent, they're getting close to the causal effect, right? So you're we are kind of like trying to say, look, I, this you understand the result of Abaji and you get a result that's very similar, right? Of course but putting like in another context, putting another words, right? So if you want to tell to apply it, people like, do you have perfect fit? Or yeah. if you show you the graph, it's enough or not, or not, right? What are the assumptions behind it, right? So that's the idea. And so that's the idea because like, and that's everything comes from Bruno, like paper, applied paper that he wants you to do the different, different, couldn't. And then you're like, okay, let's fix the inference part. And at some point he's like, oh, but maybe I should move to the synthetic control. But okay, how do I think about this method mm. in a more formal way? And so I think we're like, I think you, there are a bunch of people that were thinking about synthetic control at the time, not a lot of people. And I think the, the point is like, let's do it in a formal, very formal way to show people like, oh, to get that, that consistent estimator, you need these, these, and these. And that's really where you guys are like linear. You're going to say the the factor model, and then you're going to assume this factor model, and then you're going exactly. to work, and then you're going to work out what exactly. Given this fact, there is a fact. There is a references to factor models in the 2010 JASTA, though, right? By Abbott. Yeah, there is a factor. Yeah. But so that's what? True. Where did where did he not go far enough in that based on what we're talking about? I think he doesn't like. He said like, "Oh, there's a there's this identification assumption that's perfect fit, but it's not very formal, right?" So, Got it. And then you you did a different. So it's like a different way to formalize this yeah. control, right? Yeah. So you think like, "Oh, to get a consistent meter, you need these weights to converge to the weights that satisfy the assumption. What are the conditions that you need for that to hold?" And so it was more like like you get a very it should, as you should get a very similar result to but you put just with like more steps in a more formal way. I think, yeah. Right. Well, so showing we'll, like, go ahead. Sorry. And showing that, look, look, it's really hard to get perfect fit. Yeah. Right? right. So when you look at this graph and I think that's the message of the paper, right? When you look at this graph, if you have trends, if you have many things, you could get them the perfect fit, but it's not the perfect fit you want, right? Because you want mm. to match like fixed effects and if you have covariates, covariates, right? And you don't want to match trends, right? And you, you think, I think the idea of the paper is to show that, right? It's yeah. not like a trivial assumption, right? Because at the, I think by the time people are like, oh, this is much better than the difference in difference. And in my head was like, it's, it's, I think it's a really nice method. It's very transparent and I completely love the method. But it's, it has an identification assumption as a difference in difference, right? And it's not like that's stronger or weaker than the difference. It's a completely different assumption that people need to discuss that, right? And so, so when you write this stuff at the beginning, not now, but like back then when you were first starting to make these these in, these discoveries, and you would go talk to an applied person, and they were and they understood that with difference in differences, you need parallel trends. Maybe they understood that. What were you telling them that they needed to be thinking about for synthetic control after you've say, already made these after you've kind of made these 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 discoveries of what was inside the 
the estimator and what it needed based on that factor model, what were you starting to explain to them that they needed to be thinking about? You're thinking, oh, you, you need to get perfect fit. You need perfect to fit. really be first perfect. And you need to do many robustness tests to show that you have the perfect fit, right? So, mm. for example, you cannot cherry picking. That's the other paper you have. You cannot cherry picking the specification that gives you perfect fit. It doesn't work like that. You need to have many specifications showing that, in fact, you can get these lines really, it's not close, right? One needs right. to be like, really the other, right? Mm. And so, and you're like, oh, if you have a like, like huge trend, you should like the trend and show that the trending, the series, you still get perfect fit because you don't want to match threads, right? Another thing that I think was important by the time is people like, oh, if I have like three years in the pre-treatment period, you should use synthetic control. And I think you were like very verbal in saying like, no, synthetic controls work if you have a large pre-treatment period because the time series is really important, right? Basically, you build your contrafactor. So it's not just perfect fit. It's exactly. perfect fit. It's these two dimensions of perfect fit over long T. Yeah, you have niche more T. Other thing that was, and I think Abaji did a really good job in the 2020 paper that he has at the economic literature to summarize, right? This, right, showing like, look, like many things that like for us was like, you're trying to verbalize. He, he did in 2020 paper. That's really important. For example, look, synthetic control works when you have like a fixed number of control units. Mm -hmm. If you have like a large number of controls, and a small T0, you can overfit. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get perfect fit because you overfit. So it's dangerous. Don't do that, right? So all these things I think was really important to, for the literature to verbalize in the sense, look, it's a new method. It's very nice, but you have assumptions and you need to be careful how you do it. Yeah. Right? Because I think by the time people are like, oh, I'm going to move from different diff stretch control because it's easier to do. It was like, no, wait. <laughs> It's not like that, right? There are trade-offs as usually in econometrics. It's like, what do you see as the biggest trade-offs? In synthetic control? Mm -hmm. Going from diff and diff to synthetic control. I think synthetic control, uh, it's harder to, to have the identification assumption. I think it's not trivial to achieve perfect fit. And in fact, like, Abaji was really clear in his papers that without perfect fit, you cannot, you should not use synthetic control, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the trade-off is like that. Like it's harder to, to convince people that you have the perfect fit. It's a less trivial assumption to discuss than the parallel trends. I yeah. think you're, you're much more usual with like parallel trends. Nowadays you have like John that's doing a really nice job in testing for the parallel trends and providing boundings, bounds for this. So it's a literature that's, like, for example, if one of my students applied students come to me saying, so you use different GIF as touch control, usually it would be use different GIF because you have more techniques that you could use to convince people that oh. are getting close to the causal effect. You don't have right? that now. You don't have, you don't feel like that's the case. Do you even think in the long run that that could be possible with synthetic control? I think so, but I think it's harder to work with the synthetic control, right? Huh. Because the theory is harder, I think. Because mm -hmm. the different difference, it's the, it's the standard panel day, right? You have yeah. like large N, small T. When you go to the synthetic control, you have large T, small N. Yeah. So 
it's harder to work there, right? Because mm -hmm. like you, you build your contrafactor using the time series, but then to estimate your causal effect, you use your cross-section. So, and you don't have cross-section variation to do asymptotic approximations in this, in this size. So you need to do all the asymptotic approximation, use the time. Yeah. So do you understand what I'm saying? I think it's yeah. harder to think. So it's funny. So that's I, I was kind of interpreting your cherry picking paper, you know, which is a great title, um, that cherry picking synthetic control paper until this conversation, I almost kind of was thinking of it as beware of, you know, P hacking in synthetic control, but in a way it, now it sounds more like it's a paper that's advising you on whether or not you have perfect fit, maybe. Right, because it's yeah. giving fourteen different specifications and some and some exhibits that you can show. You can show this table with these p values. You can show this new right. kind of figure, which was not in the original, to sort of give some confidence over the robustness of the perfect fit. Is that right? Is that right? It's oh, how I like. That's a more positive. It's my interpretation that's a more of the positive paper. framing yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's my interpretation of the paper. Also, I think there's a very nice result in this paper. Yeah. That I like, that you show that when T zero goes to infinite, no matter the specification, no matter how you which which set of like for example to calculate the weights, you can combine like pretreatment outcomes with covariates, right? So. I can, I can use all the printed outcomes or can use some printed outcomes with covariate. So I think one nice result of that paper is to show like when T0 goes to infinite, how the specifications converge the result of including all the pretreatment periods. That's why, that's why usually people say using the specification that includes all the pretreatment periods should be the benchmark because yeah. when T0 goes to infinite, all the other... Okay forms to calculate the weights, you converge to this one. And I think it's a nice result, right? To yeah. show people like, like, that's why you should start with like using all the pretreatment periods, all the pretreatment outcomes, and then move to other things that include covariates if you want. And I think it's a nice result too, right? Yeah. To be more positive in terms of like helping people to apply the method that I think is a nice method. Right? Yeah. So, so that's my reading of the paper, right? It's funny though, listening to you because, you know, you don't talk as someone who's like, has this uh, attachment to it, like an affection for it. It's kind of like, you're very detached from it. You're like, it's a nice, it's a nice method. It's not like, you don't, you're, you're not like a proponent or a uh, dissident. You're just, you're just very, you're very descriptive and scientific about what it does. And here's what it, here's what it's for. But, it's not like you're an ad, you're advocating for it or something like that. I never advocate for any method. I think <laughs> all the methods has all the methods have the trade-offs and you need to learn how to play with them. That's right. my that's usually how I, I teach. That's how I teach. <laughs> I teach a yeah. course about causal inference and I use your book a lot. So that's how I teach my course. I said, look, this like I'm going to show you many methods and the idea is that you learn how to apply that and most it's not only how to apply that, it's to learn how to, when you can apply that, right? right? Because you have trade-offs, right? And you need to choose what's the best method for each situation, right? Mm -hmm. So so I talk about all the methods in the same way. The difference in difference is the same. I like the new literature. I 
I but like it doesn't the old... mean that it's the right tool for the problem that you're studying just because it exactly. was for somebody yeah, else. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the difference in difference is the solution for everything, right? Because yeah. now you have this degree, because now you have bone. No. Like and you need to you need to know when to apply the methods. I think that's the most important part for applied person, right? right. Learn when they can apply the methods, which situations they apply each method, because each right. method has the trade-offs, right? So Yeah. And I, yeah, think I know, you know, it's funny. I was speaking with someone recently and they were, they were from a different field and they were a student and they were saying, you know, in my field, uh, what's state of the art right now is not diff and diff, but propensity scores. And, and I, and I just was kind of saying, well, look, there's not really, that's not really the right way to think about it anyway. I mean, it, you should use whatever tool is appropriate for the quest for the question that you're trying to answer which is both what is your question and then what data do you have? And is it, you know, how are those uh, treatment assignments being generated? And, you know, stuff can be state of the art, I guess, you know, I don't even know exactly what that means per se, because things can be state, you can use some state of the art method that absolutely doesn't recover a causal effect effect. And you can do something that you thought was, uh whatever like from the past and it's uh does it and it does do it so i mean it's not so it's not like it's uh you know the the question is to me is you know what is your parameter and uh, what assumptions are needed to get it and are those remotely satisfied in your data and then what's the estimator that'll do it you know i mean so uh yeah well, so do you have any more synthetic control papers in, under your that are just dying to you know that burning a hole in you that you got to get out? No, no. Now I'm working with more RDD. I have some papers in RDD now. Oh, you do. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah, no, I'm more like like have like one thing that I'm really curious about that comes from applied papers. So I have many people asking me how to do RDD over time, right? Yes. Because so that that's comes something that I time. think you, all the time, and I think. People are not, they don't know how to do it. They are yeah. doing the best as they, as they can, but that's something that you can contribute. Oh, a that's lot. probably a big value. Yeah. So now, now I'm focused on this. Oh, that's smart. Staggering RDD, not staggering, oh, right? How to do RDD over time? time. Yeah. How to do RDD over time. That's something oh. that I'm thinking a lot about lately oh, in terms of like the inferocausal literature. Oh, that's, that's pretty because it's I have like valuable. three students that were doing these and they don't know how to do it and right. make me like, oh, I need to help them somehow yeah. because like I have problems of compliance over time, uh -huh. right? Because the RDD are doing, we are doing bandwidth. So the compliers can change, the treatment right. can change and you have no idea how to deal with these problems in this wow. literature. So wow. I'm moving to, that's how I, I work sometimes like, I, I get the questions from the applied people and try to to solve, right? And I see yeah. synthetic control. There are a bunch of people doing really nice jobs uh, in terms of synthetic control. I think synthetic control has a lot of things to do, especially in the inference part, right? We still don't have a good inference method yeah. for the for the synthetic control. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Uh, Bruno and I had a paper that you saw a little bit about that, but you need to go back to this paper. So I had this. But and I think this is the big trouble, big thing about synthetic control now. How to mm. to do proper inference uh, in synthetic control, 
And also, I like the literature that combines that control with other methods. I think it's really smart to, to combine Like this, that. Like the diff still? Like the synthetic, like, I think it's really smart, right? Because the yeah. idea is good. And when you combine with the other methods, you improve a lot how you can do inference. So yeah. I think that is a oh. good way to think. And, yeah. Mm. 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 But yeah, I just had this uh, inference paper that... Bruno and I have, but it's an old paper. I don't know if we're going to solve the problem there because we're stuck. <laughs> like, yeah. And so, yeah, but now I'm working like with RDD and more in this world of like trying to think about how, how I can help my students that want, that have data over time and have RDD that they want to do yeah. this over time, how you can do it, right? Okay, oh, Of course, you can do a difference in difference, but it's not the way to go problem, right? Right, right, right. Well, the fact that you're applied and an econometrician, it seems like you have your ears on, you know, in both areas, that's got to be pretty valuable for thinking about, even thinking about jumping to RD in time, that's something that you're hearing, you know, demand from, for, from probably less from the econometricians and more from the applied people. Comes up all the time. Comes up the time. And I yeah. think, and my feeling at the seminars is that, People don't know That's how right. to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't even teach it because I don't know what to say about it. I usually just sort of stick to the more, um, cannot, my because my workshops are usually more intro level and they're not they're not going into the frontiers as often. I, I've never felt comfortable talking about it because I only know of this, this uh, there's this one paper, uh, I think it's an annual... What is it? It's like it's on regression, discontinuity, and time. Is it labs? There, there are there are there are some papers about it. There's Granby has applied paper that she does the uh the a paper that combines right when she has like a time and she uses the time to help to to disentangle the unconfoundness. I think mm, mm. there's this paper that there there are some papers in the literature, but not no no, but few. And we still have many things to think about, like yeah. how to do kind of a staggering difference in difference. Right, right, right. Well, it's I've kept you for over an hour. It's so nice to meet in person finally. It was I, really nice to I talk really to you. I talking. hope that this worked <laughs> somehow. <laughs> yeah, no, this was great. I'm very sorry about my voice. That's not oh, perfect no, today. Perfect. You were great. You gotta see us through. Yeah. Honey, you